consensus among scholars, whether they're conservative scholars, liberal scholars, whether they're atheist scholars or Jewish scholars, is that the crucifixion of Jesus actually happens. Gert Ludemann, one skeptic, wrote, the fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Another skeptic, Paula Fredrickson, wrote, the single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. He was executed by the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome reserved particularly for political insurrectionists, namely crucifixion. Another person who is doubtful of Jesus' life, John Dominic Crossan, said, there is not the slightest doubt about the fact of Jesus' crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. That he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. And even a Muslim scholar, Muslims who do not believe Jesus was crucified, Reza Aslan, even he came to the conclusion eventually that Jesus was most definitely crucified. The consensus is that Jesus lived, he walked on this earth, and yes, his death was by crucifixion. Historians generally come to this position, whatever they believe about the rest of the things he had to say. I recently read an excellent book that I encourage all of you to read called No God But One. It's by a young Muslim convert called Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil uh, is a doctor. He's a very scholarly man and also a New York Times best-selling author who dedicated his life to spreading the gospel through teaching, preaching, writing, and debating. But sadly, he died of stomach cancer at age 34. And in his book, where he's writing a little bit about his story and how he came to the Christian faith, he writes this. Because oh, Let me explain. He has three key questions he wants to answer. Number one is, did Jesus die on the cross? That's his first question. Because he's trying to decide, if I'm going to convert from Islam to Christianity, I need to have some way of testing this out. So first one is, did he die on the cross? Second one is, did he rise from the dead? And the third one is, did he claim to be God? And in the section where he writes on, did he, ri uh, did he die on the cross? He writes this. The testimony of the early Christians is corroborated by non-Christian reports. Josephus, the failed Jewish general who befriended the Roman emperor, also reports in the first century that Jesus died by crucifixion. He's joined shortly after by Tacitus, a Roman historian who also reports Jesus' death. In the first 100 years after Jesus, we have Christian, Jewish, and Roman reports that Jesus died by crucifixion. Qureshi cannot deny the crucifixion. And so he goes on to the next question and the next question, and eventually he realizes that the position of Islam is wrong. And yes, Jesus died on the cross, and that has consequences for his life. And so he turns to Jesus. And I think it's hard for anyone else to doubt the question of the crucifixion. So what we need to ask then is, how did it happen? If it did happen, how did it happen? And like we said, Jesus dies on the cross. Mark 15, 24 says, They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And then we see in our reading from Isaiah 53, one of just over 100 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled by the cross of Jesus Christ. It is um, predicted that this will happen by the prophets perhaps 700 years earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was nailed to the cross and he died for our sins. 
Now, crucifixion was a particularly painful way to die. I don't know how many of you ever went to see The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film on that, but he certainly presented it in a way that revealed that to us. Let me read what one commentator said. Crucifixion was an important method of capital punishment, particularly among the Persians, Seleucids, Carthaginians, and Romans from about the 6th century BC to the 4th century AD, so about a 1,000 years when Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor, abolished it in the Roman Empire out of veneration for Jesus Christ, the most famous victim of crucifixion. There were various methods of performing the execution. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped or scourged, dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment, where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. Stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at his scourging, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam, or nailed firmly to it through the wrists. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about 9 to 12 feet, approximately 3 meters from the ground. Next, the feet were tightly bound or nailed to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the upright shaft gave some support to the body. Evidence for a similar ledge for the feet is rare and late. Over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and his crime. Death ultimately occurred through a combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the body strained under its own weight. It could be hastened by shattering the legs with an iron club, which prevented them from supporting the body's weight and made inhalation more difficult, accelerating both asphyxiation and shock. As you can see, crucifixion was a particularly painful way to die. Not only that, it was a shameful way to die. The Jewish Old Testament speaks about the one who is hung on a tree is cursed. And it is equated many times in the New Testament to being hung on a tree. We also read of Alexamenos, someone who does some graffiti uh, in the Roman Empire, writes this. They write on the wall, and it's scratched in plaster, near the Palatine Hill in Rome. And it may actually be the earliest surviving depiction of Jesus and the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's hard to date, but it's been estimated to have been made at about 200 AD. The image shows a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. There's a donkey on a cross, basically. And the Greek inscription, uh, inscription approximately translates to Alexamenos worships his God, indicating that the graffiti was apparently meant to shock or mock a Christian man named Alexamenos. 170 years after Jesus' death, people are still mocking Christians for the death of Jesus upon a cross. But I want you to note something, that while Jesus suffers, and it's actually not the pain, the physical pain that is the greatest suffering he goes through, It is the spiritual pain, the separation from the Father on the cross as the weight of all your sin and all my sin and the whole world's sin is placed upon him in that moment in space and time and he is separated from the Father as he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God separated from the Father in that moment. He suffers for you and for me. But note that his suffering brings about good. Often suffering is something we long to avoid, and yet suffering can be something that can be good. Luke Timothy Johnson, in his book on the creed, writes this, Suffering is neither all evil nor all good. 
It is simply the consequence of being conscious creatures. It can diminish us or enlarge us. We can, if we are clever and lucky, avoid suffering and live anesthetized lives, but only at the cost of being shallow and giving up those pleasures and joys that come only from suffering. Suffering that is imposed on us can destroy us, but suffering we embrace can ennoble us. Jesus embraces his suffering and is ennobled and brings about the salvation of the world. And in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul encourages us to boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Suffering is something we need not fear, friends, when we embrace it. So finally, why did it happen? Why would God suffer in such a way? Well, ultimately, it's because of God's love for his creation. We talked about that in week one. He made us in his image. He longs to be in relationship with us, but he's holy and we are sinful. All of us, each and every one of us in this room. Listen to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some have sinned, but all have sinned. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. How many did he say? Not one. None. None of us is righteous. None of us is right before God. And yet, how many of us believe we are good enough? I was struck by this in our membership class yesterday. When we do our Discovering Membership class at Holy Cross, we have this one piece where we share what the gospel is. And we get to this stage where we talk about a scale, a scale by which you measure how good you are. And of course, God's at the top with 100. And then we have right down at the bottom, we have a zero. And we say to people, now, name some people that you think you could put on the scale and where would you put them? Who's a particularly good person who's ever lived? And of course, 99.9% of the time, people always say Mother Teresa, right? So she gets a 97. You're not perfect, right? But 97 on the scale. And then, of course, we say, well, who's the worst person that ever lived? And of course, everybody says... Hitler, well done. So he goes right down, and people I often say, well, he goes below zero. And then Chris is always keen to point out, well, actually, he was good to his dogs. So maybe he gets a three on the scale, okay? So Hitler's right there. And then we say, where do you put yourself? And normally it ranges. People will say, well, you know, I'm somewhere from a 50 to a 60 maybe. People generally somewhere in the middle. They don't want to say, they don't want to be too boastful about it, but they want to say, but I am good, okay, because I'm 50% of the way there. And then what Chris will do is he'll run down the Ten Commandments and say, well, here's the standard, okay? The problem is you're measuring yourself against each other and against the people who've lived. But the standard is the law, which represents God's character. So he starts running down, you know, you shall have no idols before me, okay? And he talks about, well, we all have idols, don't we? And you go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm 0 for 2. That's the second one, right? right? And he keeps going, and we go down to honor your father and mother. Ah, ever been bad to your parents? Well, yeah, okay, so now I'm 0 for 5 and so on. And the Sabbath, I've broken that one. And we get to murder, and everyone goes, well, I'm not a murderer, right? But then, of course, Jesus says in the New Testament, even if you call someone a fool and have hatred in your heart for someone, you know, if you, you know, got mad at someone who cut you off on the road yesterday, oh, man, you're, you're 0 for 6, right? And we keep going, and it goes, you know, what about adultery? Anyone commit adultery? And of course, all the priests raise their hand. And everyone's saying, oh, we got murderers and adulterers in here? Well, Jesus says, if you look at someone lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery. Ever looked at pornography? Ever lusted at someone on the beach, maybe? Okay, now I'm like, oh, 
crap. <laughs> I'm like 0 for 8 now. And we just keep going. Eventually you realize, I'm 0 for 10. I thought I was at 50%. Maybe I'd kept five of them. No, no, you and I, there's no good enough, friends. Apart from Christ, there is no good. No one is righteous, not one of us. We need to kill that idea in us that we can make it on our own, that I'm okay, actually, I got this. I can do this with a little bit of help from Jesus. No, I need all the help from Jesus because, friends, I am over 10, and so are you. And the problem is, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And being 0 for 10 means I'm a sinner. That means you're a sinner too. The wages of sin is death. I will die, not just here in this life, but an eternal death unless something drastic happens. There's a price that has to be paid because God is just. He's a just God. Now, I know that we want a just God, and I know it because of the way my kids act. They want justice all the time. That's not fair, Daddy, right? That's not fair. He got a treat, and I didn't get a treat, right? Justice is ingrained in us, and we long for justice. We long that God is just. Well, he's just, friends, and so sin, every sin, must be atoned for. But the problem is that only one person can do that, and that's the perfect one who lived, Jesus Christ. We can't do it because we're sinners ourselves. Isaiah 53, verse 5, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed, friends. We are healed from our sin and our brokenness. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified, a simple way to define it is, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Or as Paul puts it in verse 10 of Romans chapter 5 again, we have been reconciled to God. The Greek word is katalage here. And it's often used in the sense of a financial exchange or transaction. One that puts someone back in good standing. It's as if you had enormous credit card debt. And then someone came along and said, I'm going to pay that for you. And you are back to zero. Similar idea. Jesus does that for us on the cross. And guess what? Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's that free gift given freely. And Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Good news, friends. So what's our response? Do we accept this gift? Or do we reject it? You see, friends, you and I, we have a problem. We have a sin problem, something that we cannot deal with. You and I struggle each and every day with all kinds of different sins. We wrestle with them. Sins that we think we've dealt with, they come back to haunt us, don't they? Things that we wished we were gone, long gone, they come back over and over again. And according to Romans 5.10, this makes us enemies of God, enemies of his. It's not just that we're people who are perhaps you know, somewhat, you know, we're out there and we're in relationship, but not really. No, we're enemies of God. But there's good news. I want to share a story with you. During the Revolutionary War, the preacher, Peter Miller, lived near a fellow who hated him intensely, and he ridiculed his followers. Well, one day, this unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Hearing about this, Peter Miller set out on foot to intercede for the man's life before George Washington. The general listened to the minister's plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. My friend? He's not my friend, answered Miller. In fact, he's my worst enemy. What, said Washington? 
You've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy. That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller hastened to where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived just as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister produce the pardon that spared his life. Friends, this is a shadow of what Christ did. Not only did he attain the pardon of his enemies, he actually died for his enemies too. The death of Christ is the supreme manifestation of God's love for you and for me. And Romans 10.10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that the Roman centurion, he gets it. He said, truly, this man is the son of God. But do you and I get it? Do we grasp who he is? Do we grasp the significance of the cross? And if so, do we live like it? One final quote, this one's from Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. If God never did anything else for you, he would still deserve your continual praise for the rest of your life because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. God's son died for you. Jesus gave up everything so that you could have everything. He died so you could live. That alone is worthy of your continual thanks and praise. Never again should you wonder what you have to be thankful for. Friends, we should live lives of rejoicing as reconciled people once we come to know Jesus because the greatest event in all of human history has happened and you and I are the beneficiaries set free from sin and from death.